Okay, I think we'll go ahead and start. It looks like we have enough of our audience in place. Tonight, we are very, very privileged to have Dr. Tom Honig as our speaker. As you'll know, he has taken, uh, let's say, exceptional positions on the board of the Federal Reserve and his role as the president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve. He has stood out from many of the other board members with views that are very different. And I think it's important to consider what the nature of the debate is today with regard to monetary policy and where the world economy is. Uh, Tom and I have known each other for quite a long time, and he knows that in the work that I do, uh, which, by the way, is a function of being an LSE graduate, may I just put that on the record, uh, in the work that I do, I go around the world talking to both policymakers and the world's biggest investors, trying to get a sense of where the gaps are between them, because that is where we're going to find prices moving. And as I go around the world and talk to investors, what I hear is that the concerns about inflation are definitely rising. What I hear is that food and energy inflation in particular are definitely driving people into a much more difficult financial position than they had anticipated. And I would go so far as to say that this food inflation pressure lies at the heart of much of the civil unrest that we're witnessing in the emerging markets now. It's not the sole driver, but it is enough of an impetus to get people into the streets and then they turn their energy to their old grievances. And all of that has implications for further uh, constraints on the supply side as farmers in emerging markets don't farm as much when they have civil unrest, they're not mining as much, etc. And therefore, I think it's really worth spending this time tonight listening to Dr. Honig talk about his views about monetary policy. Uh, he is one of the few central bankers who spent his entire career in central banking. So that's a long history. Uh, this is not a person who's come into central banking you know, later in life and is still on a learning curve. I think, Tom, you bring to the table an extraordinary history of involvement over a series of cycles in the world economy. I think also uh, it's very important to understand the controversial nature of this subject matter today and how heated this debate is. At the end of uh, Dr. Honig's speech, I'm going to throw a few questions out on the table uh, and then we're going to open it up to the audience. And I think we're going to have a pretty lively discussion. So with that, let me turn over and I look forward to your remarks. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, Pippa, thank you very much. Um, Pippa and I have been, been agreeing with one another uh, as long as we've known one another, which is scary for her at least, I can tell you. Um, but I want to say that it's a real pleasure to be here, to uh, speak with you, to share views, and in fact to listen to what you have to say, uh, whether you agree with me or not, I still am very interested because I am aware that um, these are difficult times and the choices are hard and there is um, a need to have uh, a dialogue. As Pippa said, I, was, I have been, I think, 
I am, I should say, a product of my experiences as a central banker. Uh, and I might just spend a minute on that because I have 38 years uh, as a central banker. I'll be retiring here in October uh, as, as required by our rules. Um, and it's been a very um, interesting period. Uh, I've been involved in bank supervision uh, from the start. I came in to our bank as an economist, but with a focus on bank supervision. And I was involved in the banking crisis of the 80s. Uh, and had watched some of the monetary policy uh, steps that were taken in the 70s that led to an inflationary uh, episode there that ended up with a very serious recession and a lot of heartache. Uh, in our region alone in the United States, which is the center of the United States, we had 350 banks failed, and each of those banks really dramatically impacted a community and the businesses within that community. So I don't take my positions lightly. And I've been involved in uh, some of the episodes that were around the crisis that we've just, uh, in some parts of the world, the worst of it we've gotten through, but I know that there are other issues coming forward. So that's importantly what helps shape my views uh, on the issues of monetary policy. And with that, I think it's fair to say that uh, for more than a year, uh, I have in fact advocated uh, not for a tight U.S. monetary policy, but for one that would begin unwinding those policies put in place during the crisis itself. In January of um, 2010, as the recovery entered its third quarter, I did express the view that the Federal Open Market Committee should modify its, its, its rate guarantee to the market. That is, while agreeing that policy should remain accommodative at the time, I voted against promising exceptionally low rates for an extended period. As recovery continued into the spring, I judged that the Federal Reserve should gradually shrink its enlarged balance sheet with minimal market disruption to the extent we could by disposing of mortgage-backed securities that were trading at the time at a premium. Thus, I voted against replacing maturing mortgage-backed securities with similar or other securities. And finally, in the fall, I have to tell you I did question the long-term benefits of further easing of monetary policy during a recovery, and I voted against QE2. So today, my view has not changed. The FOMC, I, I have advocated publicly, should gradually allow its $3 trillion balance sheet to shrink toward its pre-crisis level of a $1 trillion. It should move the U.S. federal funds rate off of zero toward 1% within a fairly short period of time. Then, after evaluating the effects of those actions, it should prepare to move the funds rate further toward a level that can be reasonably judged as closer to a normal or sustainable policy, what I would think of as a more equilibrium policy over the long term. Now, I recognize in saying that, that these actions are not simple to implement. I'm not oversimplifying this in any sense. They would impact different sectors of the economy differently and to varying degrees. They involve trade-offs in their effects and uncertainty about the short-term reactions of financial markets and the real economy. However, they're not unreasonable or radical or inconsistent with our experience in dealing with past crises. 
They're focused on the longer run, reflecting a sharp awareness, on my part at least, that policy geared too long toward extensive accommodation undermines market discipline and encourages speculative activities. Put another way, these actions reflect the view that longer, the longer exceptionally accommodated monetary policy remains in place, the greater the dangers, the resources will be misallocated within and across world economies. Now, given the wide differences of views around these issues that Pippa mentioned, I want to take time this evening to share my perspective on the U.S. monetary policy choices and their effect on economic and financial outcomes. The financial crisis, at least in the U.S., is thought to be over, and the U.S. economy is recovering. GDP growth in the United States averaged 3% from the third quarter of 2009 through the fourth quarter of 2010. And it's worth noting that the same, for the same period, the International Monetary Fund estimates that global GDP growth averaged almost 5%. Also, the United States added 1.5 million jobs into the private sector over the one-year period ending February of this year. Other parts of the world, especially Asia, have experienced particularly strong growth. While parts of Europe and the UK have grown less robustly, the fact remains that the US and much of the world is experiencing sustained economic growth. Under these circumstances, as they apply to the United States particularly, I would expect to see a change in policy in which stimulus put in place at the height of the crisis would be throttled back. However, this change in policy is on hold in the United States. And the reason for the delay, I understand, it's very genuine, is the existence of significant productive capacity that remains unused in many of the developed nations. While the U.S. economy has clearly strengthened, it has not yet returned to pre-crisis levels of output and employment particularly. Its unemployment rate, for example, remains near 9%. In the UK, unemployment remains, I understand, near 8%. Thus, for many, the issue of policy turns on one's confidence in the long-run economic trends and the degree of monetary accommodation needed to ensure that those trends continue. I understand those. The monetary policy, though, being implemented currently within the United States and much of the world is more accommodative than at the height of the crisis. Policy interest rates remain zero. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet continues to expand even as the economy improves. With these actions, the FOMC's objectives, therefore, have shifted from that of containing a global crisis to that of more quickly accelerating economic growth. Its components focus on raising inflation expectations, increasing asset values, and pushing up growth in aggregate demand, and as stated in its September 2010 release, employment. While I agree that there are, these are worthy goals, I am concerned that maintaining a crisis-oriented policy as the tool to achieve them significantly changes and shifts the economic risk. Past success in pursuing this form of policy is mixed at best. A Swiss central banker once said to me, that the duty of a central banker is to take care of the long run so that the short run can take care of itself. In the United States, this simple expression, I think, has actually been codified in its laws because the Federal Reserve Act requires 
that the Federal Open Market Committee shall maintain long-run growth of the monetary and credit aggregates commensurate, commensurate with the economy's long-run potential to increase production so as to promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. I agree with those. My focus is on the long run. Because these mandates recognize that the factors of production come together in a systematic fashion across economies, sectors within economies, and resource availability to create growth. The process is not simple, nor does it occur quickly, which is the purpose of putting policy in the context of the long run. It is within the context that policy should acknowledge the improving economic trends and begin to withdraw some degree of accommodation. If this is not done, then the risk of introducing new imbalances and the long-term inflationary pressures into an already fragile recovery, I think, increases significantly and should not be forgotten. In the spring of 2003, to put this in perspective, there was a worldwide concern that the U.S. economy was falling into a Japanese-like malaise. The recovery was thought to be stalling, and deflation was likely to occur, and unemployment was thought to be too high. This was a prevailing view despite the fact that the U.S. economy was growing in that quarter at a 3.2% annual rate, and the global economy's average growth was near 3.6%. In addition, the Fed funds policy rate was one and a quarter percent at the time. Although most knew that such a low rate would support an expanding economy, in 2003 it was lowered further to one percent and was left at that rate for nearly a year as an insurance policy. Following this action, the United States and the world began to ex an extended credit expansion and housing boom. From July 2003 to July 2006, the monetary base in the United States increased in an average rate of almost 5%, credit increased in an annual rate of 9%, and housing prices increased in an annual rate of 14%. Long-term consequences of that policy are now well known. The United States and world just suffered one of its worst recessions in decades. The crisis has sometimes been described, I think, as the perfect storm of unfortunate events that somehow came together systematically to undermine the financial system. Such events included, for example, weak supervision and misguided national housing policy. While these factors certainly contributed to the severity of the crisis, monetary policy cannot escape its role as a primary contributor as well. In reviewing data from this and earlier economic crisis, the fact is that extended periods of accommodative policies are almost inevitably followed by some combination of ballooning asset prices and increasing inflation. I recently, recently compared the movement in real policy interest rates and inflation for four countries, the United States, the UK, Germany, and Korea, from the 1960 to the present. The relationship between negative rates and high inflation is unmistakable. Also, the relationship between negative rates and housing price bus in advanced economies since 1970 is instructive. In this instance, nearly 50% of the housing price bus were preceded by negative policy rates in the year before the bus. If a housing bus is thought to uh, as a tail risk, these percentages, I think, are just too high. 
Thus, it is also worth noting that as of this month, the U.S. real Fed funds rate has been negative for 11 quarters. These relationships, of course, must be tested, the ones I've just described to you, more vigorously before final conclusions are drawn, perhaps. But the data are strongly suggestive, and the findings consistent with those other scholars, such as Alan Meltzer. Extended periods of accommodative policy pursued to enhance short-term economic growth are often highly disruptive in their effects. After the easing actions of 2003, unemployment declined from 6.3% in 2003 to 5% two years later to 4.6% in the following year. However, by late 2009, following the worst of the credit crisis, unemployment was more than 10% in the U.S. That's not, in my view, a good trade-off. So what about the future? Well, as in 2003, concerns were voiced this past year that the U.S. economy was facing the prospect of deflation, slow growth, and high unemployment. This was the case despite the many actions world economies had taken to remedy the crisis and to stimulate growth. For me, it was difficult to conclude that more monetary expansion would assure a sustained recovery. And while there may be events that may slow economic growth, as there was, these events are related to other real factors. As the United States continues to ease policy into a recovery, once again there are signs that the world is building new economic imbalances and inflationary impulses. I would suggest also that the longer the policy remains as it is, the greater the likelihood these pressures will build and ultimately undermine world growth. In the United States, for example, with very low interest rates, we are beginning to see some assets accelerating in price. Agricultural land prices, for example, in my part of the world are increasing at double-digit rates. High-yield securities and financial markets are demanding price premiums beyond what would be judged reasonable relative to risk. Why? To quote one market participant, what are my choices? The world for some time now has been experiencing rapidly rising commodity prices. While some of these increases may reflect global supply and demand conditions, at least some of them of the increase is also driven by highly accommodated monetary policy in the United States and in other economies. And more recently in the United States, there is evidence of accelerating increases in core prices. Over the past four months, core PCE inflation in the United States has increased from a modest rate of 7 tenths percent to a rate of 1.5 percent. I understand the UK also is experiencing price rise. While no one can say with certainty whether this will continue, evidence is mounting that it might very well do so. So I conclude my remarks this evening with the following observation. I track the average growth of money and price levels in the United States from the 19th century to the present. It should surprise no one that there is a striking parallel between the long-run growth of money and the growth of the price level index. For example, from the end of World War II alone, the price index has increased by a factor of 10, depending on how you measure it. With such a track record, it is hard to accept that deflation should be the world's dominant concern right now. So that's my, that's my, my point of view. And I'll conclude by saying, as I said earlier, central bankers must look at the long run. If current policy remains in place, we must certainly, we almost certainly, will stimulate the growth of asset values, and we endanger ourselves with higher inflation. This may temporarily increase GDP and employment, but in the long run, 
We risk instability. We risk damaging inflation and we risk job losses, which is a dear price to pay for middle and lower income citizens, I think. However, the long run is not yet here. We have opportunities to assure greater long-term stability. Moving policy from highly accommodative to merely accommodative would be a step in the right direction. In this way, we can achieve a better long-run outcome than if we delay normalization. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'll conclude my formal comments, and now uh, we'll, we'll let the fun begin. So I'm open to questions, and I'll start. You want me to have a seat? I will do that. Don't let me forget. Uh, let me kick this off by throwing a couple of thoughts onto the table from a market point of view. One is that it's hard to believe that the FOMC really put so much trust and faith in core CPI given that it does not include food and energy, which are the two things that are moving most and fastest. That's the first thing. So there's a gap between what the FOMC has asked market participants to, to use as the bogey, as it were, and what in fact is happening to real prices. So I think this is a, the, the place to begin. And then layered on top of that is, seems very odd uh, from an international point of view. When we see that in the global financial crisis we had extraordinary capacity destruction as the marginal additional suppliers in food and energy basically went bust and restored the monopoly power of those left standing. And so they have been raising their prices. And as a result, you start to get the prices rising in these areas that we don't include in our calculation and throw on top of it what I would describe as petrol. And I think that is what monetary policy is when you blow out every known boundary of monetary policy and you throw it at the economy, the point is to be like petrol, to provide the incentive for a spark. And so the question is, is there no recognition that when you combine these two forces, the inflation shows up in ways that may not be so visible? And I'll just give two examples. One is what I mentioned at the opening, that it hits the places that are most vulnerable to it first, which are emerging markets who spend half the income on food and energy. And second, which by the way gives then rise to higher wages in those places, which is itself an inflationary phenomena. But second, even for us in the West, it's showing up in the form of goods that we buy in the store, literally getting smaller. Cadbury's has just announced they're taking two squares of chocolate off the edge of the chocolate bar before <laughs> Easter, right? <laughs> Why? Because chocolate and sugar prices are going through the roof. It's the only way to protect their margins. Your breakfast cereal, when you open it up, it's air. Why is it all air? The thing is ready to explode when you open it because they're trying to give you less cornflakes, more air. It's a way of protecting margins from these price pressures. So there's a gap somehow between the technical analysis of inflation and the human being's real experience of it. Well, I, I would start out by saying, um, in all due respect to the markets, um, I'm, that's not my concern because they can read this stuff and they know they can read through whether they can choose to choose core or they can choose to use total my, my concern is with the with the real uh, if you will the, the the real people the people who are consuming uh, day to day and there I do have concerns and and I I do think that you have to look at total CPI 
uh, as, as an indication. Now, you also have to be aware some of this are, some of the inflation is supply shock uh, and some of it demand push in terms of rising incomes and diets improving. Uh, so that part of it you would have, but that would be, that's the temporary part. I am more concerned that by feeding, if you will, through monetary policy and, and expansionary monetary policy that then validates the higher price and then carries it to the next level, that, you know, that is inflation that has the tax element that hits the, it's the most regressive tax we put on our people. So that's why I have concerns about inflation and why I look beyond just core to the total. And if you look at the index, it's been a while since the total and the core have been very close together. So time makes that even more difficult, to, makes the core even more difficult to rely on. So I agree with you, we should, we should uh, think about it in terms of total because that's what's impacting us and whether we're validating uh, if you will, increasing energy prices through monetary policy as we try and deal with short-term problems. Um, in terms of, of the effects with the consolidation of the productive capacity, that is a, that's not a monetary issue. That's a, uh, if you will, a, almost an antitrust issue uh, as we allow these institutions, whether they're the largest financial institutions or the largest commercial institutions, to control large parts of the economy, you do get uh, efforts by those parties to extract a rent. And I like to remind people that Adam Smith wasn't just a, a seller of the invisible hand, he was also very much aware that the goal of business is to broaden the market, but also to narrow the competition. And that to narrow the competition is to impose a very large tax on the consumer, and we need to be mindful of that. But that's separate than monetary policy. So what we have to be, from a monetary point of view, is very sensitive to the fact that we are validating rising prices and therefore encouraging them up. And, and that's where I have uh, my, where my position comes from. And to that end also, what we find is the banking system, the investment banks, banks in general, when you give them free money, and I say this as someone who sat on trading floors, if you give me free money, which is effectively what we've had, not only from the United States, but many governments around the world, hmm. then what I'm going to do is put it in the most speculative place, right? Because it's costless to me. Right. So now you've got banks, instead of making loans, they buy Greek bonds and they buy um, the breakfast complex, as it's called, right? They buy hmm. grains and cereals because these speculative outcomes make sense if it's costless. And therefore, maybe we've defeated the purpose of all this liquidity, which was designed to kind of keep the window of opportunity to sell open a little longer. And instead of selling, all these institutions are now doubling up. Well, as I, as I said in my remarks, the, the portion of the action that I think was done uh, correctly was the it, it, Ignoring the causes for a moment, but just the fact that you have it, and that is to staunch the crisis, you pump liquidity in. But when you're done with that, it's time to renormalize, if you will. And, and I think we have to do that. The, the issue, here's the way I think about it, Pippa. When you have a, think of any commodity in the world, or any labor uh, that you might hire or try to hire, or anything. Does it trade effectively? Does it trade efficiently if you try and price it at zero? 
It doesn't. I mean, there's no, you can't have a market. You can't allocate resources with a price of zero. Credit is, is really not immune from that. You have to be mindful of it. So at zero, you are not necessarily going to get uh, a correct allocation of the credit uh, in the world or in, a, in any economy within the world. So I'm very concerned about keeping it at zero. Uh, because the distortions become embedded and worsened over time, and we need to be mindful of that. That's what we learned in prior periods, uh, and, the, and, the, and the heartache from that comes later, but it comes in, in very serious forms. Well, I think that's right. The social consequences of this are, well, for students here at the LSE, your sense of history is better than most people. What the social consequences are of um, this kind of strategy. It is designed definitely to benefit certain members of the society yeah. to the disadvantage of others. Well, you know, here's how I, I tell that, because you know, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with many of the motives. The, motives is to, the motive is to improve the economy, to bring people back, to bring unemployment down. So it's not, it, it's not the intentions that I disagree with, it's the outcomes. And if, it doesn't matter how good the intention is, if the outcome is to disadvantage one group over another, I think your consequences are very serious. And that's you know, why on another issue, too big to fail, where you did bail out these largest institutions, when you don't bail out others, uh, is quite uh, difficult for me to accept because it is, it is an unfair, its intentions were to staunch the crisis, but there could have been, could have been done in other ways. The consequence is it advantages one to the disadvantage of another. And that's, that's not how, if you will, that's not how capitalism is supposed to work. That's not how markets are supposed to work. I'm going to pose one more question. And while I do this, please think about your own questions so we can turn the mic over to you. I need to see you begin to raise your hand so I can call on you. I see one. That's good. Um, maybe finally, my question is about the potential need of the United States to pursue an inflationary path. After all, the debt burden in the United States is of epic proportions, and we're in a very privileged position that we may be able to inflate our way out of it. And my sense from working in policy circles during my career in Washington is that no one sits around saying, yeah, let's choose the inflation option. Right? Everyone agrees it's a bad option but you default into it by constantly taking the soft option and you end up on an inflationary path, presuming that you can get off it at some later stage and then it turns out you can't. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's so important to remember that even Paul Volcker, when he became the chairman of the Federal Reserve, did not feel that he could administer the medicine just because he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve and he went to the President of the United States and said, I need you to give a speech to basically give us freedom and permission to impose the pain. And then when uh, he lost one president and gained another, he had to ask the second president for permission again. And so this is a real question about the ability of the institution to address the issue. And maybe the perception the rest of the world has that the US wants to go down this path because it's the way of eroding the debt burden is not entirely misplaced. Well, that, it's a very good question. Let's begin with, at, at the moment, if you ask most Americans, they are adamant that we need to take care of 
the debt and the deficit. Uh, one of the difficulties is getting people to uh, be the first in. Because like any country, uh, there are so many people affected. So if I, if I say, well, we're going to reduce the subsidies for agriculture, or I'm going to take it for housing, or uh, God forbid, uh, Social Security, uh, you get an immediate reaction. And part of the reaction isn't just that, well, not me. It's why would I be the first in when you have bailed out these other parties? What's fair about that? Why should I take this out? So that pushes you, that pushes you out. You delay because that's a hard question to answer. And so you can't, you, you can't get everyone to buy in because they'll be the first in. That takes time, and I think there's an effort right now in the Congress to get buy-in, and that's essential. Now, the consequence, though, if you don't do this, and I think this Congress, many within this Congress understands it, is that you, you do endanger your long-term inflation outlook even more. And the way it comes, it never comes we want you to monetize debt. It comes because what you see is real interest rates begin to rise with the mounting debt levels, and you say, well, we, we, we're going to kill the economy. We've got to lower interest rates. And the only way to lower interest rates is to print money, temporarily anyway, and try and bring them down that way, and that makes the inflation worse. And then that becomes the tax, because that is then the tax. It is the most regressive tax you can impose on your people, and it is very destabilizing in the long term. But everyone, you can see that. I can get people to agree with that, but that short-term pain is what you have to have enormous buy-in to and a sense of equity a sense of shared sacrifice, and that's what the Congress of the United States, and I think other congressmen, congresses across the world, or leaders across the world, uh, that's their greatest challenge right now. So I don't envy them that challenge. Great. We have a question just up here. If we can send one of the microphones. In the meantime, might I point out, we have had social unrest in this country on exactly this point. As people have said, how come I get hit with the pain first? And they are willing to engage in civil unrest in the streets over it. I saw that. Could you uh, identify yourself too, yeah, please? Bernard Casey from Warwick University and LSE. Um, I wanted to think back to um, General Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo, who mentioned to one of his artillery officers that um, generals should not go shooting at other generals. The artillery officer had um, Napoleon in his sights at the time and offered to. I wondered whether you could comment upon some of the letters which are more or less equivalent in this country. Um, Mervyn King has to write to uh, the Chancellor with increasing regularity, some of which contains a discussion of uh, core um, inflation and uh, other measures of inflation. And whether you could comment upon UK monetary policy at moments like this. Thank you. I, I think your war story is well told. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I should be shooting at other uh, other countries. If if I would I would I would comment on your policy here in this country if I were confident in my own policy at the point. So since I'm not, I don't think I should be doing that, and I won't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, I can. I can say <laughs> that I don't think, I think it's very interesting. We have a question right here. I think it's very interesting, this view that it's, the inflation is temporary. It's been temporary now for 40 months. 
I don't think it's temporary, um, but it's this is exactly how inflation happens. You spend a long time saying it's temporary before you act, which gives it a lot of headway, a lot of room to grow. There's a question just here. I apologize, but this is another question about a, 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 a foreign country. Okay. Um, can, can, is, is there a, a straightforward explanation of why Japan seems to have flown in the face of these general rules that easy monetary and fiscal policies inevitably lead to higher inflation? They don't seem to be able to get out of the trap of deflation. Yeah. They have, uh, I'm not an expert on Japan. Uh, I do know they have, um, when their bubble burst, it had enormous impact on asset values that they're still adjusting from, that they also, um, uh, their demographics are quite a bit different, and therefore um, they have they have not, uh, and they're not a reserve currency uh, in the sense that the U.S. is, so they have, uh, there's been a lot of, shall we say, um, exporting of their, their investment opportunities and so forth with those funds. So I think that's helped relieve some of the pressure on them. You travel around the world, you may have a, more to add on that as well, Pippa. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think it's an interesting question, and I'm, I have a very strong view on that, which is that uh, Japan's social welfare system was always embedded in the corporations. Therefore, the government never wanted small companies to compete with big companies. So the brakes have always been put on entrepreneurs in the form of very high taxes. You can't open up a shop where there's any footfall. You could only put it out in a rice paddy. And therefore, you never had the small business engine, which is critical because it generates two-thirds of the net new jobs in all industrialized economies. And since that engine could never really go, you could throw a lot of liquidity. It never went anywhere. In the US, we have the opposite. We have a highly dynamic entrepreneurial yeah. class. And they are incentivized very, very fast. And I see all, signs of, all, all sorts of signs in the United States of a, of a resurgence of that entrepreneurial class and even the shipment of manufacturing activities out of Asia coming back into the United States, many examples of this. So I think, unlike Japan, we will have a velocity of money and it will happen very suddenly. Yeah. There's a question just up here. Hi, uh, Tristan Elwell, former NSA student. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question about what your view was on the China and the Asian FX policies in the US and uh, QE2, QE3 and easy monetary policy actually being a stroke of genius in terms of it. It's in a way, for all the inflationary side effects that you've talked about, and I agree with you, they may be nasty, but they're a whole lot worse for the Asians and they're a whole lot worse for China. And actually it's then forcing the real exchange rate to move rather rather in the face of their refusal to move the nominal exchange rate. So actually it's, it's, a, it's a stroke of genius because it's forcing eventually their all their inefficient manufacturing that goes on in China potentially to be uh, able to be relocated back to the American Midwest where um, they've been decimated in part, you might argue, by their FX policies over the last 15 years. Right. I, well, first of all, I'm, I agree that it's very good to bring the manufacturing back on for, for for valid economic reasons. I think, though, you want to be careful about cutting off your nose to spite your face. And that is, if, if, if we are doing that uh, and we're inflating our economy, then these uh, remedies will be short-lived. 
and there will be some very serious consequences as there was in past periods. I think we'd be better off if, if that, I mean, if that's the goal, and then engage in a subsidy for manufacturing uh, in a different fashion that doesn't distort your entire economy around it and give you long-term consequences that will, in fact, uh, undermine your manufacturing at some point again, just like it is in China if, we're, if they're seeing the inflation. So it's, 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 uh, it, yes, it has these short-term benefits that we keep seeing, and I'm very happy to see manufacturing come back on the U.S., but, but I think there is a uh, maybe a more uh, a less um, disruptive way of doing that for the long term, and, and that's really where I, I think about that. And there's a question right here in the center. Thank you. Um, you made mention to... Oh, um, and could you just say who you are? Yeah, my name is Addy Roberts. I'm a member of the public. Uh, you made mention to um, the U.S. economy is in sort of a, in a self-sustaining recovery. But when you look at the unemployment rate, it's still at 9%, and it's just come down from 10%, and there's still sort of a spare capacity in the U.S. economy. And I wondered how you square that with uh, raising interest rates at the moment. Oh, uh, uh, a very good question. Um, you have to remember now that I'm not advocating for tight monetary policy. I'm advocating for a non-crisis policy. And so zero is a crisis policy that by itself it should be temporary because it is a crisis policy. And then what you want to do is move back towards a uh, more normal policy, but you do it, you do it systematically. So what, what you, if you think about it, you have, you have your, your, your policy becoming less accommodative, but not tight, less accommodative over time, and your unemployment. We've, we have put more than a million and a half people back to work in the U.S., private jobs, net private jobs. And, and you're moving this way. But what if, what, if, what if what your policy is that you stay zero until it's down to 5%? What's, what's a consequence of that? The consequence of that is a terrible disruption here and back up to say maybe next time 12%. So it's, it's, that, it's the thinking of the long term that you want to make sure that those jobs being brought on stay on and you don't get so impatient that you cause the next disruption by not adjusting your policy over time, carefully, thoughtfully, but most certainly off of zero. I think, by the way, this is such a critical point. Uh, it, it begs the question, what would constitute neutral levels of interest rates in your mind now? Because as, as you say, any kind of a tightening below neutral isn't really a tightening, it's a normalization. Right. It's only once you hit neutral and then you raise rates right. that you are tightening. Right. And, and, you know, the thing is, um, you, have, you want to keep in mind, you, you can't measure precisely neutral any more than you can precisely measure the long-term sustainable uh, unemployment level, so forth. But you can estimate it over long periods of time, and so you put a range around that. And, and you don't want to go so far below it that you create inflationary pressures, and you don't want to go so far above it that you put yourself into a, a, into a, a modest or even a more severe recession. But one thing, I don't know exactly what that is. It's probably um, above 2%. And so at zero, I'm not worried about uh, being too far off the mark in terms of my 2% goal. But I think we have to be very careful about this over time. And if you look at policy, you wanna, you, if, you, if you think about it, if you're going very high with, with rates and then very low and then very high because you're worried about inflation at the end of the recovery, 
and you get impatient, so you raise it to, and then you bring it back down. I worry that you're you're introducing instability into the very um, effort to bring greater stability overall. So you have to be very mindful of that when you engage in the policy. That, so I'm going to keep it zero until unemployment's back to some number. That's that's that has its own set of, uh, of consequences. There's a question straight and very in back right there that would. And by the way, yeah, we've got to go back and look at the, what they call the stop-go policies of the 1970s, because that's what's at risk. Yeah. Hi, Zach Elfman. I'm a hedge fund analyst. Um, given, this is debatable, but given what many see as the structural nature of unemployment in the U.S., can you justify the Fed's dual mandate? Well, I, that's why I read the, the dual mandate to you. It, it's, it's not really a dual mandate. It says conduct policy for the long run, where you have, you're growing at your long run potential. You have, if you're growing at your long run potential, then your unemployment at its long run level. And interest rates are at their long run stable level. The, the mandate is really, we call it dual mandate, but it's really about maintaining economies for its long term growth. To me, the mandate is you, you should think of the long run and conduct your policies so that you engage in policies such that these numbers remain stable over time. It's not that you bring unemployment down. I mean, if that were the goal, shoot for zero. It, it can't be. It's got to be for stability and the long run. There's a question right in the center here. Uh, th thank you very much. I, my name is Richard. I'm uh, just a member of the public. What is Dr. Bernanke waiting for then? I mean, what, what is he looking to see? I mean, you know, okay. wh why does why do the the majority disagree with your view? Well, I, I think the statements are are on that are pretty clear. There is this view, as I outlined to you, and and I understand it that you do have excess capacity, uh, you do have higher unemployment, and therefore you can you have more flexibility, more time uh, to, to wait, to, to, to make sure that you've got things moving and even accelerating, perhaps. And so that's, that's the rationale. I, I, and where reasonable people can differ is that I think that the consequences of that are long-term and, and can be very devastating uh, to the economy. That's why I, I used the 2003 example as, as an example. So it's a difference of view. And so their view is you have time because you have excess capacity, I think. I mean, that's how I would interpret it. By the way, on that point, when the FOMC think about excess capacity, it strikes me they think about it in a US domestic context only. But the world economy doesn't operate this way anymore. You know, arguably, the US has no capacity in a number of things. Um, and excess capacity in ways that will never be used to its full extent again, like perhaps steel and autos. So do they take into consideration what the global capacity picture looks like, or is this just not discussed? Well, I think, I think that the, it, is, it is thought about, but I think that the, the view, and I, I understand it, it's a legitimate view, is that your concern is for your domestic economy. That's what your assignment is. Now, the way I extend that is that th that's, that's right. I mean, I'm focused on the U.S. policy. That's what my duty is. 
But the way I think about it is that every action, so you're, you're a world reserve currency, every action goes out and does affect the world because you are the reserve currency, and therefore there's a reaction back. So, I'm, so it is my duty not only to think of, of the domestic in terms of what my action is, but what the action back might be, and that's what we have to take into account. And so how we judge what's going on in the rest of the world can vary. Uh, I, I judge it um, uh, as, as uh, well, I judge it as important because we affect demand globally because we are reserve currency. What's the effect back on, uh, on us? And I think it's, it's not, it's, it, we cannot ignore it. I agree. There's a question just next door to the one who just asked the question. Hello, John Skara from Absolute Strategy Research. Um, my question is uh, based around a, a speech which uh, I think Robert Fisher gave um, back in the fall. And he was talking about the exit route from QE and talking about how there were two options. One was paying interest on bank reserves. The other was to uh, sell the portfolio of treasuries. And then he mentioned that in unreasonable scenarios, then the cost of those actions would be prohibitive. Now, do you think that uh, if we got to the stage where uh, QE was stopped, uh, we got a rise in the government bond yields because of the government not sorting out its deficits, and then QE is required again to keep interest rates at a, a, a rate that keeps to, to the, uh, the economy going, then you're in a position where what is, was then an unreasonable scenario is actually a reasonable scenario. The Fed is trapped. Well, I'm not quite sure I understood the question. So, Well, well the, sorry, the, the cost of, um, say, paying interest on the, uh, the bank deposits at the Fed is excessive. It's above the amount of money that you get. So you're, effectively, the Fed runs at a loss. Well, uh, I don't... That's not a concern um, as, as a, that's not a concern that would impede policy choices that you thought were in the best interest of the country in terms of uh, raising the rates so that you can raise interest rates and so forth. But a couple things. Uh, I think Charles Plosser recently uh, put out a speech that's consistent with what I have said, and that is you really do need to move the interest rates off of zero uh, and you really do need to dispose of your portfolio. It's, you need to get this off the books. And by doing that, you can do it in a systematic fashion that I think does not disrupt the markets. And so that's what I've outlined, and I think it makes sense. I think as far as uh, if you need to re raise the rate, you should. Now, I think you can do it with this corridor method. Uh, that's one way of doing it. But I think you can also... Uh, uh, make that less costly uh, it, by selling off the assets over time and then rates will come up on their own but you want to do it with great care you don't want to shock the real economy in doing that that's why you have to announce the policy and the process but the fact that you're raising the interest on reserves against the, the assets you hold it, it's yes it will reduce income perhaps but you're also raising the Fed funds rate uh, so you may be reducing income, but that's not, that's not the major concern. The major concern is get policy renormalized, get our portfolio back into short-term treasuries, and get the Fed funds rate as a primary 
a tool for conducting monetary policy. There's a question right here. Yes, hello. My name is uh, Alberto Serra. I am an MBA alumnus of CAS Business School. The question is, um, okay, I would start from saying that I completely understand your point. To achieve sustainability in the long term, we have to, we cannot uh, keep this interest rate so low. And uh, I personally think that uh, in the UK and other European countries, the real estate bubble never exploded yet, and we are experiencing bubbles in commodities right now. Mm -hmm. The real question is, how feasible is uh, a monetary policy of going back to normal, I would say, 2 to 3% interest rate, when European countries have never been, as far as I remember, so in-depth? and are committed into bailing out Greece and Ireland and maybe Spain and who knows what's going to happen. So how feasible, how, what's the margin, the real margin to actually pursue um, the policy you are actually describing in Europe? Well, I, in Europe, um, well, since we have similar problems in the U.S., I'll just confine myself to the U.S. for everyone's sake, especially mine. Uh, but uh, the fact is we have, we have sizable debt, people are asking the same question, and here, here's, what, here's what the monetary authority has to face. If you monetize the debt systematically because you don't want interest rates to rise, and you try and artificially keep it down to zero, you will create bubbles, you will create disallocations, and you will create inflation. So it's not, it's not really a choice uh, in the sense of, of uh, good versus good. It's a choice of here's what you have to do if you monetize debt. And we do know that that means the fiscal authorities have to step up to the issues. And, by, and if, you, if, you, if you accommodate the fiscal authorities by printing money, whether you're here or any other country, in the U.S. or any other country, what you do is you enable the fiscal authorities to postpone and then to impose that inflationary tax on its citizens. And that's, then, then I'd say that's, that's a very dear price and a very dear mistake on the part of the central banks. So it would be practically feasible to, for example, progressively raise interest rate by 1, 1.5% if the government is going to help on the other side with fiscal policy. Because otherwise, at the moment, there are views saying that probably would, the, the entire European Union right. would go bankrupt. Right. If, if your economy is, is under pressure, inflationary pressures are likely inflationary pressures, that has to be your goal. And the fiscal authorities have to either reduce spending or increase taxes. And there's consequences to each. but. There, you know, there are no, f I mean, the first lesson of economics, are, there are no free lunches. So if you try and, if you try and eat for nothing, you, you know, you are going to starve in the long run because people are going to stop feeding you. We have, I think we're going to take one or possibly two more questions. This one at the very back. If you keep your questions short. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Brandon. 
I wonder, uh, since the U.S. Constitution says only gold and silver is legal tender, uh, then what do you make of Bart Chilton, a CFTC regulator, uh, corroborating a whistleblower named Andrew McGuire out of the LBMA um, thoughts that central banks uh, through primary dealers are manipulating the gold and silver markets to make uh, the res world reserve currency and other fiat currencies look better against gold and silver? Um. <laughs> Well, I do think we should obey the Constitution of the United States. That much I can tell you. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I didn't follow your question all the way through, but I do, I do agree that the Constitution of the United States should be obeyed. All right. <laughs> the state of Utah is, has similar thoughts, is yeah. what you're expressing at the moment. <laughs> well, there's a couple of other parties, and too. And a couple right? of other groups. Okay, we'll take, this one in the center has been waiting for quite a long time as our last question. Right in the center here. Hi, my name is Tom. I'm a uh, student at Bancroft School. Um, I was just wondering, you keep talking about the long run and the short run. Something like how you would define either, because it, is it going to be the next year or is it going to be quite a lot in the future, just the short run alone? Well, that's a, that's a very fair question. And it, it, of course, there is no precise definition. But here's, here's how I think about it. Um, the short run is you have an event and you're trying to deal with the event. You have a crisis. You're dealing with the crisis. And there are going to be consequences from that. There'll be the immediate consequences and then they'll over time. So you deal with that and you let the long term kind of take care of itself in that case. But when you then engage in that policy, then the long term, you can look. Literally, you're talking three, four, five years into the future. Now, it could be less than that, it could be slightly more than that, but the, but the consequences are building if you stay with that short-run policy over a, a, a what we might call a longer period. And so those are the things you, you begin to think about. Uh, for example, if, if we were, um, let's say we were growing uh, not only at our current rate, but we were, in fact, getting back towards our potential. And we moved rates to some number, say, 2.5%, 3% estimated neutral. Then I would want to stay in that range. But what tends to happen is if we see things heating up, we then decide we're going to slow the economy down, so we move rates up. But, of course, monetary policy doesn't take immediate effect. It has long and variable rates. And so we get impatient. We move it up more. And we move it up more until finally it falls, and then we, then we go the other way. Short run, we have a crisis, so we then plunge the rate to 1% or zero, and things don't get better right away because economies work that way. They're, they work slowly. And so, but we're impatient. We want it to get better, so we keep it at zero and zero and zero, and the economy picks up, gets to 3 4%, 5 and then finally we have inflation. So then we go the other way. So what I'm saying is, if you, if you confine your actions as a, as a monetary authority around a narrower range, and therefore allow monetary policy to carry on, then the markets can function. You're always going to have shocks in the market, and the market has to adjust. But if you try and take care of every zig and zag in the market, then you are actually beginning to introduce instability, and that's what we have to be very reluctant to do. 
So when I say long run, I am talking three, four years. In 2003, when the, when the policy was put in place to go to 1%, it was left there till in the middle of 2004, and then very slowly pulled out. Well, the crisis came in 2008, 2007. It started 2008. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. Let me go back one more time. The, the expansionary monetary policy in this, that ended up with the 80s crisis that Paul Volcker had to come in and get under control actually started in the mid to late 60s as the United States tried to deal with a war and a social policy and money was put into the economy and the inflation rate merely increased from like one and a quarter to one and a half percent so that was okay, and then it became 2%. And then when it got to 4.5%, a mere 4.5%, we put wage and price controls on. And then that didn't work. And then we backed off. So the long run became actually a decade. And then finally, when inflation got to 13%, we couldn't deal with that any longer. We had to clamp down and put the economy through a very serious recession to get inflation back. So when I say long run, I mean four or five, maybe as much as a decade, depending on what your policies are that lead up to it. And that's where it's, you know, I know people like to think of, we've had discussions among ourselves that people like to think of economics as a science, but it's, it's part, there are laws of economics, but they're also the art of timing and, and so forth. And that's what we have to be mindful of. The long run, there is a long run, and someone has to pay, and that's what we want to be careful about. And to that end, I have to say I must be getting old because I think of three or four years as the short run these days. <laughs> yeah. um, and might I also say it's also very interesting how maybe, you know, Jacob Frankel often says, we maybe lost the DNA to even recognize inflation because most people under the age of 50 haven't actually experienced it during their lifetime. And I have to say, I find Brazilians extremely interesting these days because they have lived through inflation at 10%, 100%, 1,000%, 10,000%, and they know exactly what to do when they see it. But for the rest of us who haven't seen it during our lifetimes, we certainly just saw what deflation looks like, and that was a pretty scary place. And so it feels like inflation has to be better. And at the beginning, inflation really feels good because asset prices start rising. It's hard to complain about it. So it's a shame that you have to wait a little longer run before people feel the consequences of the decisions they're making. And that's why we're so privileged today to have Tom with his long, long experience as a central banker who's been through many different cycles and who knows what the pain can be from inflation and to help guide us in our thought process so we can come to a firmer conclusion about where we all stand on this very complicated issue. And for that, I think we should all be extremely grateful for the time we've had from Dr. Honig tonight. And thank you so, so thank much. Thank you. Thank you.